Hey, Danas and Beckys, here we are. It's another year. It's been a whole other 12 more months that happened. 12 of them. Happy New Year to you and yours and theirs. Happy New Year to your, yours, theirs. I don't know if that makes any sense, but Happy New Year. Whoever's listening, whatever's going on. Do you have any New Year's resolutions? I actually don't make New Year's resolutions. Because throughout the entire year, as soon as I make a decision to make some sort of change and I feel like I've steadily fallen into the groove of that new habit or that new way, then I move on to the next thing. I feel like it's good to just keep going and keep that muscle working where you're trying to always change and shift and do better. And that's my feeling. But maybe you just have hopes for the year. Hopes are good. I'm hopeful that you're hopeful. And hopefully, you'll take some action where there's need. How about that? But you don't have to do it like I do it. Do it in your own way. Make tiny steps, tiny little steps. That is something. One tiny little step is something. Tiny, tiny steps are good. Okay. I don't know what else to say about that other than if you're still listening, I'm even more thankful that you've stuck around to hear about Tiny Steps. And in case you haven't heard yet, I'm going on tour. It's called Hello Again. That's the name of my tour. Get your tickets at tignotaro.com. Do not miss out. If your city isn't on the tour, we're adding cities all the time. Now on with the show. You know, Sarah Silverman made her mother make a doll of me, a life-size doll of Rose O'Donnell that she used to sleep with in the bed. (laughs) Who's the lesbian now? Exactly. There you go. The stuffed lesbian. This is Don't Ask Tig. I'm Tig Notaro, and please don't call me the queen of advice. My next guest is a comedian, producer, author, and actor whose most recent credits include The L Word and Smilf. She'll also be starring in the upcoming reboot of American Gigolo on Showtime. Her name is Rosie O'Donnell, but the world knows her simply as Rosie. Rosie, thank you for being here. It is my pleasure, honestly. Honestly. It's my pleasure. I'm a huge fan, so I'm a little fangirl. I am a huge fan. I watched in the 80s that competition you did. Star Search. Star Search. I was watching. Wow. I had a mullet, uh-huh. and I had like high heels because I thought everybody would know I was gay yeah. if I didn't wear high heels. You fooled everyone for a long time, Rosie. You think so? <laughs> no. Now, you've done so many things. You've written books, established philanthropies, founded a travel company. What would you say you are most proud of? Well, it has to be being a mom. Okay. You know, right. But I have five children. Yeah. All of them uh, adopted. And, you know, it's the greatest joy in my life. And it's the greatest um, 
honor to have gotten to parent these kids, you know? So I think that's it. But the most fun that I've ever had in show business has been on Broadway. Mm -hmm. I did three musicals, which is a pretty big accomplishment for somebody who has trouble finding the right key. I love doing it. I love the camaraderie that happens. I love that everyone is on the same schedule and there's like a whole underground routine community. Um, that's the most fun I've ever had in showbiz. I, you know, not to compete here, but I was asked to do a musical and I'm not a singer. I'm not a dancer. How do you prepare? Well, I took tap and ballet my whole childhood. Okay. I grew up with a mother who was um, obsessed with Barbara Streisand as I became because she would always be in a good mood when she was playing Barbara Streisand. And then, you know, you'd come home and you'd hear The Sound of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. And you're like, we're going to be in for a rough week, you know? <laughs> right. But um, yeah, I, I always wanted to do it. Uh-huh. Did you see yourself doing it? Like, you know, when people would say to me, I, you should go to Hollywood. I'm like, I want to be on Broadway. I want to be on 42nd Street. I was never aiming for either for Hollywood or Broadway, and I didn't end up doing Broadway, but I'm interested in pushing myself. I think you could do an amazing one woman show where, Mm -hmm. you know, you prepare with little songs that meant something to you in your childhood or that, you know, and you can have backup singers so you don't you don't have to be a belter. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm really not that great of a singer. I'm really not. I'm a very mediocre singer. I can't hear when I'm really off key. I'm. You know, I hear you're trying to steer me away. No, I think you would be fantastic (laughs) at it. Now, you have over the years interviewed thousands of people. And uh, I'm curious, for my own sake, if you have any advice regarding the art of the interview. Yes, my advice is, if there's egg on anyone's face during this interview, it should be yours. Mm-hmm. And we all learned that from Johnny Carson. Mm-hmm. He never let the other person be the butt of the joke. He was the butt of the joke. He was the gold standard in my mind. Mm-hmm. Mind you, I grew up in my formative years with him and, and only him. So it was shocking to me when it changed. It was like jarring to my world and senses. But I think to watch him would give you everything that you need to know because he was one of the greatest interviewers. And as far as uh, your acting, is it something you enjoy? Because it does seem like you're doing more of it. Yes, I love it. And I I always knew in my career, I had three number one movies, three summers in a row. Wow. It was an unbelievable achievement. It was something I didn't even have dreamed I would be able to do. I always thought I was going to be Rhoda or Ethel, Mm -hmm. the funny, chubby friend from New York. You know, that's what I always thought that I was going to be. I never had aspirations to be Mary Tyler Moore or Lucille Ball. I I much wanted to be Rhoda. And uh, I feel very lucky that I've gotten the roles recently that I have. Uh, So the role that I am playing in American Gigolo was written for a man. And they offered the role to me without any changes. And I thought that was a great thing. You know, 60-year-old women are not often featured on TV. So I thought it was uh, a big honor. What do you look for in the roles that you take on? Well, first of all, the people that you get to work with and, you know, the people who did Ray Donovan Mm -hmm. are the people who are doing this show. And it's the same crew and... And so to get to work with David and and all the people there, I was like, totally, yes. I mean, Mm -hmm. any experience that I have that lets me, you know, 
work with the likes of Mark Ruffalo. And, you know, it's a huge thing for me and I take it very seriously and I'm prepared and I'm present and I really love it. How do you prepare? Well, now for this police, I'm watching all the cop shows and detective shows that I can Uh on TV and trying to find the reality of this woman. And, you know, the um, creator said to us, you know, this role, you're probably going to be playing for a long time. So you create the backstory and Mm -hmm. then we'll sit down and we'll talk about how to make that work. So that's sort of a wonderful thing artistically to get to establish a character and put your thoughts in it before they write it. And did you have a lot of training? Well, I went to college for acting Mm -hmm. and uh, then I dropped out to do stand up and I did stand up for many years. How many years? I started when I was 17 at a comedy club when all my friends came one night Mm -hmm. and they laughed at everything I said because I made fun of like people from our high school. You know, the next night they asked me to come back and nobody from my school was there and I died a horrible death. (laughs) And and they came over and said, you know, where'd you get that material? I said, what material? They said the joke about the car. I said, oh, Jerry Seinman was on Merv Griffin yesterday. That was his joke. And they go, you can't steal people's jokes. I'm like, I'm not a joke writer. I am an actress like Barbara Streisand. She doesn't write the song she sings. Yeah. I don't write jokes. And they're like, yes, you do. You know. So then they let me be um, MC five days a week at the comedy club. And I did that. And then I went to college for a year for acting. And I was like, I need to get out and work. So I went and started working. And then I got on the show called Star Search, where you saw me. I sure did. And then I also watched you on a VH1 stand-up spotlight that wow. you hosted. And I used to love, love the way you would come in and be like, you know, I'm your host, Nancy Reagan. Right. I'm your host, Gandhi. Exactly. I'd be like, oh, my gosh, she comes out and then she says she's Gandhi. Oh, my gosh, she comes out and says she's Nancy Reagan. I couldn't even handle it. When I was doing it, they wanted me to say my name five times an hour. And I said it was so ridiculous. <laughs> so I just kept saying I'm and I put in a different name. Oh, my gosh, I loved it. It took months before they realized I was doing it because I said, I'm Florence Henderson and Florence <laughs> Henderson called the studio to see what she was doing on the network. <laughs> That's hilarious. No, I absolutely loved it. And before we get into the questions from our listeners, I'm curious if you can just tell me how you balance your business and personal life. I think a lot of people are thinking about the work life balance at this point in time? Totally. I did not re-sign my contract after my initial contract. So they wanted me to stay and they offered me uh, like $100 million, $50 million a year for two-year contract or something for my talk show. Uh But my son was about to enter first grade. My mother died when I was 10. She never got to do the parenting home stuff because she was sick and then died. And I wanted to be a mother. So I walked away. Mm -hmm. I went to the suburbs and raised my kids. Mm -hmm. And um, it was never a regret. It was never something that I think of as unfinished. You know, I felt like it was totally a fully painted canvas for me for at that time. We were also about to go into war. 
Mm-hmm. And I knew that mental health wise, that was going to be a big challenge for me. And uh, I was happy that I was not having to be on TV daily when all of that was happening. And then my uh, my son enlisted in the Marines. Mm-hmm. He just got out four years ago. But um, I think that I always have known the balance by being able to turn away at what was many people's idea of the high point of my career. Mm-hmm. But I had other things, you know, five children is a lot. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Right. And I'm one of five. So it didn't seem like a lot to me, but it's a lot, you know, it's a lot. I mean, when I adopted this last baby, Dakota, who who is going to be nine, uh, when I was 50, I remember thinking, are you going to make it to her high school graduation? Right. Listen, I'm 50 now. I'm I'm always like, I want to make sure I'm around, you know, because I know I'm coming in a little later. Yeah, exactly. So if you had a new baby now, that's what I did at 50. Yeah. I think for me, it was the greatest thing that could happen. Yeah. So you're saying we should have more kids. I'll let Stephanie know. Well, I will tell you this. Three's a lot, too, because then you're outnumbered. Well, we have my father-in-law, though. Not the same. I don't know. He's like on the floor rolling around almost 70. We call them the triplets. Oh, that's great. I know. I'm very, very thankful that they have their grandfather here. All right. So, Rosie. Yeah. Do people ask you for advice in general? Yes. They ask me for advice. Okay. Well, it is, uh, it's reported that you've donated and helped raise over $100 million for a number of nonprofits. So I am confident you'll have some ideas for this listener. All right. Amanda writes, Hi, Tig. I'm in my 40s getting my MBA degree, pet sitting part-time, and thinking about starting a business. I think I would be a great entrepreneur because I am organized and have strong quantitative skills, and I'm totally touchy-feely at the same time. However, I'm an entrepreneur in need of a good idea to save the world and make a million dollars at the same time. What kind of business should I start? Well, I think that you have to decide whether you want to do charitable endeavors that help save the world or if you want to make a million dollars. That's right. It seems like you have to pick a a priority. Yeah, those are two different trains going two different places. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone will ever be able to honestly be a philanthropist and try to make a million dollars for themselves. Although God knows there are many philanthropists nowadays who are millionaires, but which came first? So I would say my advice is uh, just do a 501c3, set it up and start there and see what your charity can do for real people and then expand that as it grows. All right. Have you set up that? Yes. You know how to do this. Well, I have a brother who's very good at it, but I set up a foundation Mm -hmm. as soon as I was rich enough that it embarrassed me. Mm -hmm. So then we set up a foundation where I could donate a lot of money and do a lot of good with all the gross excess that had become my life. (laughs) Well, that's great. And if you have all of these qualities that Amanda has, look around and see what is in need And think about how in the pandemic, if you were going to create something, I don't know, create Zoom, look and see what is needed and then go for it. But yeah, hopefully 
what you want to do is going to make you money. But like Rosie was saying, you probably can't prioritize both. Amanda. Good luck. Yeah. Good luck. Go save the world. It needs your help. Rosie, sit tight. I'm going to toss to a break and then uh, I've got more questions for you. All righty. back from tossing to a break. I've never said toss to a break. It felt good to try something new, but it's not for me. I'm not, I'm never going to say that again. Mm -mm. So this next one is about an unwanted dinner guest, Rosie. Wow. Jules writes, I have a friend that I meet periodically for lunch or dinner and they always bring their small dog, whether we eat at a restaurant or in my home. I love animals, but I don't want to sit next to them while I'm having a meal. Also, the dog is very high energy and very distracting, especially at a dinner party. I've suggested that they leave the dog home, but they will not. Please tell me what to say to them without seeming heartless. Do you have dogs, Rosie? I am a bad dog owner. Ah, here we go. Listen, I had these two puppies, Mm -hmm. Chihuahuas, Buster and Poindexter. Okay. They were my life. I was like one of those people who when people would say, I can't go out to the movies and to dinner because of my dogs. I'm like, you're such a loser. What the hell? And then I got these puppies and I was like, oh, my God, my (laughs) pupper whipper, you know? Yeah. Then I got my kids and it all changed. And Uh I had to give those two away because... Parker was running. They were chihuahuas and he was grabbing them and hurting them. So um, we've had, you know, a bunch of dogs as a family and I love dogs, but I'm not a dog lover. Mm-hmm. I'm a dog liker. Okay. Okay. Yes, we have a dog. And, you know, my daughter Vivi says it's her dog because she loves it more than we do, she thinks. But anyway, <laughs> I think you should just come right out and say it. I have a nanny and started working here a few months ago, and she asked if she could bring her dog. And I said, yes. And then after the three days of having the dog, I said, guess what? It's no. I was wrong. You can't bring the dog. I'm sorry. I wanted to help you out, but I can't do it. It's too much. And she understood. I feel like it's definitely a sensitive topic, but uh, people should be asking if they can bring an animal over or into a restaurant or to a party. And I think it's rude if it's ignored. Especially when it seems it's been addressed. Yeah. It seems as though she had brought it up and they say, no, well, then maybe they're not invited. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if somebody's just blatantly not respecting your boundaries, I truly don't understand. It's so funny because Stephanie and I go to this coffee shop that has this sign that says, no dogs allowed. And when we go separately from each other, we always take videos and pictures of all of the dogs in the restaurant (laughs) because every morning everybody's in there with dogs and it, we always take a video. We show the sign that says no dogs allowed. And then we pan over 
to the line of people with dogs in the restaurant. I don't think it's unreasonable to ask. And I also don't think that it makes somebody heartless to explain that although you love dogs or animals, it doesn't mean that you love sitting with them when you're eating. I agree. Hear, hear. Hear, hear. All right. Jules, we hope that advice helps you out. Rosie, this one comes to us from a teacher. Nikki writes, Hello, Tig. I am a high school art teacher, and I also advise our Gay Straight Alliance Club. I have many students in the LGBTQ plus community in my classes. 20 years ago, it was kind of remarkable to have a student who is gay and out in high school. Now I have a much wider range of students, and not only do they have gender preferences that don't match their appearance, but may also not match the gender or pronoun preferences when I met them. I feel like I really struggle to make the switch. I cannot even imagine what it must be like for a parent. Anyway, I wonder if you have words of wisdom on this topic. How long is an acceptable time to struggle with the change or to struggle with a name or pronouns that just keep feeling innately wrong, even though I wholeheartedly support their decision to be the person they truly feel they are? Are there ways I could make the transition more fluid so the student feels supported? I feel like Nikki is compassionate and wants to be helpful and change with the times, But I think what I'm struggling with is saying that something feels innately wrong. What do you suppose that means? I think she feels that it's innately wrong for the children to change their gender pronouns. And that struck me as well, that, you know, she's asking how long should it take for her to get over her preconceived notions of female, male and intersex and I don't know. It's a very, very deep conversation, I think. You can't really answer it, you know? Yeah, I wasn't sure if she was saying it was innately wrong because she feels like she's looking at what she feels is a male and is having to say female, and she feels that that is innately wrong. That's what I took from it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a big change for everybody, the pronouns and identities. But I feel like language, just like culture, changes. And things are a-changing. They've changed. <laughs> they have changed, and they are going to continue to change. And it, and I feel like it's maybe a matter of treating these kids like they're maybe trying something on because they're looking for a good fit Because some might know for sure this is who they are, but sometimes it's a process. Like they might identify as straight and then gay and then non-binary and then they might be trans. And so it can be a process. Have you ever been misgendered? Oh my gosh, every second of my life. Yeah, me too. When I have the mask on, I'm on the plane, I got Uh a hoodie, sweatpants and they say, sir, what would you like for dinner? And I always say, um, the chicken, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I don't even really change it. And sometimes they catch that my voice is higher, I guess. Sometimes yeah. they don't. They just call me, sir, the whole flight. But it is since I cut my hair short, never happened with my long hair. Uh-huh. 
So I just think it's interesting. And the women I date would never be misgendered, just like your wife. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in a girl with the, you know, who reminds me of me. I'm interested in a girl who's more like a girl. Right. But that might not even mean that they identify in that way. Exactly. They have that appearance. Yeah. It's a really interesting time when there isn't a clear cut answer of how to deal with it. Because I feel like the way to be supportive in general is to apologize if you call somebody by the wrong pronoun. But I think there has to be some sort of leeway for people that aren't fully understanding how people identify or what to call everyone and for there to be some sort of patience around it because things are changing and things are not completely obvious. And um, you can tell what people's intentions are, hopefully. And if and if they have good intentions, then that's the best you can hope for. Yeah, and you can, you can just do your best. You know, I have a friend who's one child transitioned and the other child is uh, non-binary they. Mm-hmm. And she's an English professor. Mm-hmm. And she says it's so hard for her. It doesn't just click. She has to make a big effort in order to get it. My understanding is that if somebody says, hey, call me Fred now. That's basically what it is, is you call them Fred, or you call them they, or you call them he or her. It's just like a name. Right. You just make that change. And uh, and as far as the time, I don't think there's any acceptable time. Six yeah. weeks. You got to be off by <laughs> yeah. six weeks. Nikki, the important thing is just make an effort. It sounds like you are. And uh, Rosie, our final question comes from two people with an appreciation for comedy. Julie and Ellen write, Hi, Tig. We're going to your show in D.C. Woo-hoo! Now then, we're two middle-aged moms that haven't been out in a hot pandemic minute. What should we do to celebrate before your show? And afterwards... P.S. You're welcome to join us, whatever you decide for us to do. Thanks. Well, these two sound like real lunatics with the woohoo. You guys sound like you are going to be nuts out there. And the fact that you need to celebrate before the show and then celebrate after the show. Yeah, that's dedication. I don't know if I'm cause for that much celebration, Rosie. I think you are. I guess that's all I wanted to hear. I think they should have a lovely dinner somewhere. Mm-hmm. Not too much. Each have a glass of wine. You don't want to be drunk for the show. Mm-hmm. They laugh. They have some drinks. And then they go out for dessert somewhere. Yeah. But take it easy. Pace yourselves. Yeah, you know, yeah. you don't want to go too hard right out of the pandemic gate. And just if all else fails... Call Party City and ask them how to celebrate, right? <laughs> Get some balloons. Like Get some a, balloons. Yeah. That's That's Drive around it. with a car full of Party City balloons. They should get silly string while they're at Party City. Imagine the woohoos that'll be happening. Thank you for getting tickets to my DC show. Those of you that haven't yet, 
Do it now, and I want to hear some woohoos when I get to D.C. I know Julian Ellen will be doing that. Don't interrupt the whole show, though, Julian Ellen. Yeah, I know on. your types. Let me tell my jokes and my stories, okay? I'll see you in D.C. Rosie, we've reached the final segment. All right, okay. It involves two questions. It's called best and worst advice. What's the best advice you've ever received? Um, Winona Judd Ah. told me when our kids were toddlers and they were fighting over a toy that she never put her kids in timeout. She always put the toy in timeout. So whatever they were fighting over, she picked it up, put it on the top of the counter and said, that toy's in timeout. Now go play. And it totally worked. Winona. Winona Judd. All right. What's the worst advice you've ever gotten? The producer of Star Search told me that I was too much of a tomboy and I would never make it in show business. (laughs) Sometimes when young kids say to me, how do I become a successful comedian? I say, you should quit. And then I wait to see what their response is, you know? And if they say like, there's no way I'm going to quit, then I'm like, great. I'm glad I said that. But if you would quit, I saved you about eight or nine years, you know? It's not longer. If not longer, you're right. Oh my gosh, those coffee shops where people are doing open mics. I started, I think, almost 25 years ago. And uh, I bet you there's still a gaggle of comedians that I started out with that are still going. And I also very much feel like you don't need to stop doing comedy if you haven't, quote unquote, made it. Because it depends on why you're doing it. Exactly. If you're wanting the big time and you're not willing to put in the effort, then... You should scram, clown. Right. Rosie, we're at the end of the show, and it's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have you, and I can't wait to meet you. Yes. Well, it's lovely to talk to you. I'm a big, big admirer, and I love your whole everything. I love your point of view. Well, thank you. The feeling's mutual. And is there anything that you would like to promote? No. Zero. Zero. All right. Well, we'll just tell people to keep an eye out for you. All right, there you go. Thank you so much, Rosie. I really do look forward to meeting you in the flesh. All right, one day we'll do it. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And here is another friendly reminder that you can see me live and also in person on my tour called Hello Again. For tickets, go to tignotaro.com. What on earth are you waiting for? Get your tickets right now. And if your city isn't there... Check back again at tignotaro.com because likely I'm adding a city near you. Tig is hosted by me, Tig Notaro. It's produced by Thomas Willette, Shana Deloria, and Ryan Lore. Our executive producer and editor is Beth Perlman. 
Engineering and sound mixing by Johnny Vince Evans and Eric Romani. Digital production by James Napoli. Talent booking by Marianne Ways. Production support from Pizza Shark and Dan Latou. Our theme music is Friend and Tig by Edie Burkell and Kyle Crusham. And Listen to Your Heart by Edie Burkell. Special thanks to Hunter Seidman. APM Studios executives in charge are Lily Kim, Alex Shaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Concept developed by Tracy Mumford. Our executive consultant is Dean Capello and Gobsmack Studios. You can always ask for advice at don'tasktig.org. Just write in with your problem or send us a voice memo. Remember to follow us on social media at Don't Ask Tig. Don't Ask Tig is a production of American Public Media. And as always, thanks, Dana. And I'll tell Becky. I'm stand-up comedian and sex symbol Tig Notaro. And I'm actor and writer Cheryl Hines. Before Cheryl and I got into the big business of podcasting together, (laughs) we were just simply friends. And we're still friends. But now we talk about a different documentary every week on our podcast, Tig and Cheryl, True Story. So whether you love documentaries or just want to hear us slowly lose our minds, check out Tig and Cheryl, True Story, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, cool.